On April 1st, 2012, filmmaker Jamal Fanaka died at the age of 69. The cause of death was reported as complications from diabetes. Jamal had started making pictures in the 1970s and at the time of his death had completed six feature-length films. He had been working on a seventh, a documentary called Hip Hop Hope When He Died. His death didn't make headlines, no big tributes made, none that you would have noticed at least. And when the next Academy Awards was held in 2013, Jamal was left out of the annual In Memoriam segment. Why had he gone so unnoticed? While enrolled in film school in UCLA, Jamal proved to be so prolific that he completed three feature films as a student there. He was in the industry before he had ever graduated. One of those three films, Penitentiary, released in 1979, was the most successful independent film of the year, taking in an impressive $30 million. Having a hit movie is usually your ticket into this industry. But when Jamal got his ticket in, he had some issues with what he saw. This is nothing new. Find someone working in the industry today and they'll tell you things aren't always right. Usually they'll tell you off the record or without detail. And by now, we all know this anyway. The Oscars So White, Me Too, and Time's Up movements all shone a light on some of the issues that have been plaguing the industry for years. However, for Jama, when he experienced these issues firsthand, his reaction was different. He didn't complain under his breath, he didn't ignore it, and he certainly didn't just let it go. He decided to do something about it. And in the end, all it would cost him was his career. My name is Dan Delgado, and today we're taking a look at one man's fight against the industry in an episode we're calling The Rebellion of Jamal Fanaka. Welcome to the industry. Throughout movie history, there are a number of film movements that have occurred. There's French New Wave, Italian Neorealism, German Expressionism, and the New Hollywood, to name a few examples. One of these movements is the L.A. Rebellion. The L.A. Rebellion is a group of filmmakers who came out of UCLA's film school, and we start there in the 1960s, pretty much right at the same time of the first uprising in L.A., which was in Watts in 1965. So it's a group of filmmakers who come through UCLA's film school for better or for worse, it is primarily the students who were either black, and when I'm saying black, I mean people who were from both Africa as well as African American. But there were other communities that also participated. So there are also other white filmmakers, Latino filmmakers, Native American filmmakers, and particularly Asian American filmmakers who I consider them to be a part of the LA Rebellion. That is Zinabu Davis. Not only is she a filmmaker and someone who teaches film as a professor at the University of California, San Diego, but she's also a member of the LA Rebellion. So if anyone can define it, it's her. Now, what kind of distinguishes us is we didn't change Hollywood and we didn't kind of like develop a totally different style of filmmaking other than what was already there. What we did do was that we represented our communities that we came from. That was something that we as makers did not see. So it was more about making 
honest and sometimes painful depictions of the communities that we came from. The films of the L.A. Rebellion were typically small, usually personal, and they did not exactly get the money rolling in at the box office. No, primarily no. The one, so so Killer of Sheep and Bless Their Little Hearts, they're like classics of the L.A. Rebellion filmmaking style or school. But no, I would not say that they were very profitable. In fact, they probably got more acceptance and respect from foreign audiences. That's always been kind of an issue. The, the person who was the most profitable in terms of financial success would have been Jamal Fanaka. That Jamal Fanaka became a filmmaker in the first place was a crazy twist of fate. He had no intention of becoming one while growing up. Then one day... He and his friend were getting ready to rob a drug dealer because they knew the drug dealer couldn't go to the police because he's a drug dealer. And then they saw the sign in the window that says, UCLA, you are welcome here. And so Jamal basically decides that I'm not into robbing this guy. I'm going to go see what this thing is at UCLA. You know, and they were given free donuts at the, you know, at the corner store. So, you know, he was definitely enhanced. Uh, well, that was a, an enhanced uh, experience for him to get some, you know, free coffee and donuts and talk, talk to these people about going to UCLA. To be honest, though, free coffee and donuts is a very persuasive offer. Jama is in UCLA. And while there, he becomes quite possibly the most prolific film student ever. And Jamal is an amazing filmmaker and was an amazing person. And that while he was at UCLA Film School, he produced, I believe it's three feature films, which is kind of like unheard of. I don't think anybody else who's gone through film school has quite gotten that many feature films out of the can. Jamal's first movie was MMA in 1974. It was a drama about a teenage girl from the South who moves to L.A. and has to find her way through a completely different lifestyle. In 1975, he finished his second feature, Welcome Home, Brother Charles. This was about a wrongfully imprisoned man who seeks vengeance on those who put him in prison. I won't go into it, but the ending to this movie is one of the most unforgettable I've ever experienced. His third feature as a student would be his most successful. Penitentiary was released in 1979 to good reviews and great box office. Penitentiary. A film by Jama Fanaka. You almost got hurt. Inside it's hot blood and cold steel. Rated R starts Friday at a Blue Ribbon Theater near... It would be the highest-grossing independent film of the year. While Jamal would go on to make two sequels to Penitentiary in the 80s, his success did not open the doors for him in Hollywood like he expected. While Jamal was an independent filmmaker, he loved Hollywood movies, and that's where his sensibilities lay. He applied for every Hollywood job he could, but in spite of his success with Penitentiary no one would hire him. He would later say, They always say Hollywood is a liberal town, but it's actually one of the most conservative, racist towns I've encountered. Jamal's last film was Street Wars, a movie he was not happy about. A 
according to Jamal, the movie ended up being distributed before he was ever finished with it. It's out there today in its unfinished form. Frustrated with his lack of opportunities in Hollywood, Jamal became one of the co-founders of the African American Steering Committee within the Directors Guild of America in 1994. So this is essentially the Black Caucus that exists within the union for Hollywood directors. The intention was to address the employment issues that had been plaguing not only Jamal but other minority filmmakers. But it wouldn't be long before Jamal was openly feuding with the DGA itself. By 1998, the DGA Ethics Committee was trying to suspend Jamal from the Guild. They charged that he had threatened TV director Paris Barclay with, quote, physical violence, that he illegally recorded phone calls with producer Sheldon Leonard and DGA spokesman Chuck Warren. Additionally, they charged him with three separate outbursts that disrupted meetings in 1997. Here is the description of those directly from the letter Jamal was sent. The first incident is May 4th, 1997. During a DGA African-American steering committee mixer with HBO executives, he, quote, interrupted the panel discussion in violation of the announced format and rules of decorum. Also, he was heard using an obscenity to refer to the panel moderator. Then, on May 10th, 1997, just a few days later, during a seminar of the same committee, he disrupted the proceedings by badgering the panelists and refusing to yield the floor to the moderator. Then, during the September 1997 DGA Summit on Diversity, he disrupted the panelists during their presentations, went onto the stage and took unauthorized photographs, and asked questions from the floor, all in violation of the announced format. Jamal would deny all of these charges. In October of 1998, the DGA suspended Jamal for two years. He responded by resigning from the Guild and filing a lawsuit against the DGA itself. But you see, this wasn't the first lawsuit that he had filed against the DGA. Jamal had discovered there was a clause in the DGA's collective bargaining agreement that he felt had been violated. Here's Jamal explaining this in an interview on the radio program Democracy Now! back in the year 2000. After I founded the African American Steering Committee, I educated myself and I found out that in 1981, the studios and networks agreed to include Article 15-201 into its collective bargain agreement. Now, Article 15-201 says, and I quote, Producers, that means all the signatories of the collective bargaining agreement of the Directors Guild, shall make good faith efforts to increase the number of working women and ethnic minority directors. Since that time, minorities, the employment of minorities has gone down. Women have gone up from a minuscule 3% to a very, very small 8%. So that means that 88% of the jobs go to white males. 8% to white females, 4% to all minorities. And I decided that someone, somewhere, had to take a stand. And I initially filed my class action lawsuit in pro per. But this article in the DGA Collective Bargaining Agreement, Article 15-201, was the basis for his lawsuits with the DGA. He filed more than once, and each time they were dismissed, with Jamal being eventually labeled by the court as a vexatious litigant in 1999, which is basically a fancy way of saying he liked to file frivolous lawsuits. 
By the time he was doing that interview with Democracy Now!, he was filing a different lawsuit. This time, it was against the major film studios and TV networks. Which ones? All of them. Here, he was claiming they were in violation of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. At first, he suffered another setback with his lawsuit against the studios. This entire time, he'd been going it alone. Then, he got some help from this guy. So my name is Irving, I-R-V-I-N-G, Meyer, M-E-Y-E-R. I'm a Jewish guy from Brooklyn. He's not just a Jewish guy from Brooklyn. He's also an attorney. So I represent only employees who are suing their companies for racial discrimination, gender discrimination, uh, disability discrimination, age discrimination. So you're the discrimination attorney is what it sounds like. I am. That is the thing that I concentrate on is only cases involving discrimination. And Irving reads an article Jamal wrote in the Daily Journal, which is a legal newspaper in California. And Jamal's case immediately appeals to Irving. He tried to get a job as a director for TV shows or for movies. You know, he would send around his resume and make contacts in the industry, putting himself out as a qualified director, a successfully qualified director, who actually made money on the films that he produced and directed. And he just got nothing. Nobody would listen to him. They just shut the door didn't want to bother with him. He was this black man. They didn't want to deal with him at all. So Irving calls up Jamal. And that's when I called him. And I said, you know, I'd love to do it. And, you know, we talked, et cetera, et cetera. And so I did, I wrote the reply brief. The case is being heard in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, what usually happens with the Ninth Circuit, generally speaking, they don't want to have any oral arguments. They'll just rule on the papers that were sent to them. In this situation, they they did agree that they wanted to hear from the attorneys representing the parties. Irving goes in for the oral arguments. And, you know, we got very positive feedback from the justices during the oral arguments. Anyway, a few weeks later on, we, uh, we got the opinion and the judges overturned, the Ninth Circuit overturned the district court, the trial court's opinion saying that there was no case and saying, yes, there is a case and you should try it. Now we're getting a do-over on this case. We got another judge. His name is Stephen Wilson. He's still sitting on the bench in the U.S. District Court of Appeal for the Central District in uh, downtown uh, Los Angeles. Wilson has been a judge since 1985. He's a Reagan appointee, and he turned 78 years old in 2019. And we walk into court, and the first thing that Wilson says, sitting up on a bench, is, oh yeah, this is that guy who thinks he can direct films better than Steven Spielberg. So, you know, I just, you know, went right into him and just told him he didn't know what he was talking about, etc. I was pretty straightforward with this guy. He then made some other comments, and just to give you an idea of how judges don't always follow the law and don't and really have their own agenda, he then said these other comments, and so I wanted to appeal his, his ruling, because eventually he ruled against us. So I wanted to take it up again to the Ninth Circuit. So I wanted to get the transcript of what he had said in court to show how biased he was. It took me a year to get the transcript. First, them telling me they didn't have the transcript. I pursued. 
And then finally I got the transcript, and of course, lo and behold, his comment was not on that transcript. Surprise. After that didn't go his way, there was one more appeal. I then filed uh, you know, another appeal with the Court of Appeal. We got a different panel up there this time, but they ruled against us. And so, needless to say, we had some publicity on this, and people were hearing about it. But needless to say, Jamar was really, really devastated. I mean, I too was devastated, but it really, really took a toll on Jamar. I think this is what caused his early death. He got so depressed that he started getting sick. I mean, not immediately, but you know, it was over a few years. And I think that that's what caused his death. We can't say for sure if it caused his death in 2012 or not, but we can be fairly certain that it ended his career. Jamal was out of appeals, out of the DGA, and it's believed he was very quietly blackballed in the industry. The cool thing about Jamal was that he always would try to come back and bring the people who he had gone to film school, he tried to bring them up to his entrance into Hollywood. He tried to, like, make a way for other people to actually be a part of the system as well. Unfortunately, it cost him. Um, He had a big lawsuit that he placed against the studios, and unfortunately, it cost him his career. Once, you know, people saw that he was serious about this lawsuit and about the hiring practices that were not allowing minority directors into the system, they basically blackballed him and, you know, he really never was able to continue the kinds of work with financial success that he had earlier in his career once he decided he wanted to make that lawsuit. Even though Jamal's lawsuits weren't successful, it's not as though you couldn't make a case that they had an effect on the industry. In the long run, yes, it did, because I think the Directors Guild realized how important it was to have the minority and women's caucuses and that those members within the Directors Guild specifically needed to be supported in better ways than they had done up to that point because Jamal was on the steering committee of the African-American caucus within the Directors Guild. So by him being so vocal and being so persistent, you know, he fell out of favor with some people who basically wanted him to go away and shut up. But at the same time, he emboldened and encouraged other people who wanted to say, hey, yeah, look, this dude is right. We do need to kind of like make sure that that the studios do hire people. And, you know, in a lot of ways, in that sense, he was ahead of his time. What had happened and what he felt at least good about was he was noticing that all of a sudden now some black directors were getting work on TV shows and in, in making movies. So he got he got a lot of pleasure out of that fact. Jamal Fanaka is mostly forgotten by the movie-going public. For some people in the industry, though, he's become a bit of a legendary tale. For example, this is Lexi Alexander talking to me about Jamal. So this was a battle in so many layers, and it was so brave um, that it's really not a simple, oh, he was just this black filmmaker who complained against Hollywood. No, no, he... He really like went out there and tried to dismantle the whole, you know, systemic corruption that was going on. I want you to keep this in mind. Lexi has never met Jamal. 
And Lexi is fairly impressive herself. When she was 19, she became the World Kickboxing Association champion in karate point fighting. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but it sounds incredibly impressive. She then went on to become a professional stuntwoman, then was Oscar-nominated for a short film and began her directing career. She's been working in movies and television since then. Lexi is also known for her advocacy. She heard about Jama back in 2015 when the Women's Caucus of the DGA was having their own fight about getting equal work. You know, I don't know if you noticed, but there at some point, like maybe three, four years ago, um, a bunch of women in the DGA got together and uh, contacted the ACLU. And the ACLU then contacted the EOC and it became this kind of big you know, women, you know, suing Hollywood for discrimination. And I was part of that group. I I wasn't one of the originators. They brought me in later. But, you know, I learned a lot about what has been going on within the guild all these years before and who's for us, who's against us, who's, you know, actually discriminating. And within that kind of uh, group and all of our work that we did, somebody told me the story about Jama Fanaka. And then I looked into it and I, I just thought it was so amazing because his story of resistance has so many layers. And since then, Lexi has been taken by Jama's story. In fact, I only learned about Jama's story through Lexi Alexander tweeting about him. The stories of him interrupting meetings and charges brought against Jama. Well, Lexi has heard a different take on all of that. They did not like the way he was seeing everything so clearly. He saw it so clearly what was happening within our own union. How there was a lot of old white guys who were holding on to power with all might. And um, he saw that. And he didn't only fight for black filmmakers. He spoke up for women filmmakers as well. And I think that, you know, rather than sitting in a meeting, um, in a union meeting and just letting time go by and pretending everything is fine, he just kept speaking up and interrupting and he got punished for it. They made him sound like he's crazy. And I think he was the opposite of crazy. I think he was incredibly sharp, incredibly brave. He tried to get his own group of fellow African-American directors to fight the DGA. And the DGA was so smart to kind of create this divide and conquer within, you know, the group of black filmmakers so that he essentially couldn't even fight his own people. He couldn't convince his own people because there were people in the guild that were promised big jobs. If, if you stick with us, if you stick with the status quo and don't go with this crazy guy, you get big jobs. And Lexi isn't alone in her admiration for Jama. The case of the female caucus of the DGA bringing their own lawsuits was originated by this woman. My name is Maria Geis. And just like Lexi Alexander... I didn't know Jama Fanaka at all, but he probably was my biggest inspiration. And if you listen to Maria's story, it sounds oddly similar to Jama's story. I had directed two feature films, had graduated from UCLA Graduate Film School, and had quite a lot of early success. 
And um, and then I didn't get any work at all. And finally, around 2011, I started to attend women's steering committee meetings at the Directors Guild. And there was a small group of people who were trying to get a summit off the ground for women DGA members. And the Guild wasn't allowing them to move it forward. And also, I was really frustrated about the number of women directors. So, I, you know, I just became uh, very active in the Women's Steering Committee. And um, I started counting numbers. And very quickly, I recognized that the number of female directors on studio features was at about 4%, 13% in episodic TV. And I couldn't even get the numbers in commercials. But I had heard from top executives at ad agencies that the number was around 1%. And this is the most lucrative category of directing. And I knew at once that this was, you know, probably a violation of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Title VII. Back again to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Now, here we have Maria with her own problem of not finding work and realizing there's a bigger issue at hand. She does some digging and finds a lawsuit from the 1980s concerning six women members of the DGA who were just like her accomplished filmmakers who simply weren't getting jobs. So part of my research was to go down and look up that lawsuit. And while I was looking up that lawsuit, I found uh, other actions by somebody named Jama Fanaka. And so I got very interested in Jama Fanaka and did some research on him and, and started to learn about how the fact that he was really one of the first people, you know, before, you know, before anybody who had been been a real part of the L.A. rebellion had really helped begin the L.A. rebellion and that he had been really active on behalf of women directors, too, and that he had been using legal action and based on Title VII. And I was convinced from from the get go that this that legal action was the way to battle this. You know, using the law and, and the numbers was the was the way to do this. Maria has pushed forward with a group of women with her own lawsuit against the DGA. The lawsuit was eventually picked up by the ACLU and then brought to the government entity known as the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, better known as the EEOC. The EEOC functions in total confidentiality. It's kind of like a black box. Information can go in, but it can't come out. If any employee of the ACLU uh, talked, uh, leaked um, information or spoke about the investigation at all, they could face huge fines and up to a year in jail. So we have no way of knowing what has happened. Um, Some people think that the uh, investigation has been abandoned. Some people think that it has resulted in settlement agreements. And those settlements are things that we're seeing everywhere, like all the massive increase in female hires in episodic television, which was in 2013 at 13% and today is in excess of 25%, which is enormous. Eventually, Maria received inside information that the EEOC had sued the studios over discrimination and was now in settlement. So essentially, we're talking about a win here. But just like Jama, Maria's activism has come at a price. I'm blacklisted, too. Uh, you know, you don't do what Jama Fanaka did or I did unless you have the nature of a kamikaze pilot. You have to put yourself 100% on the line and speak the truth always. 
and no, no matter what speaking the truth might, uh, what the repercussions of that might be. The good news for Maria is that as of 2019, she's attached to several different projects and may begin working again soon. And real change has been achieved. It's been a long process for Maria, but one of the things that's kept her going throughout this time was the inspiration that she has from Jama Fanaka. So Jama Fanaka, I had realized also had just died. (laughs) Part of me felt that I don't know, somehow that the spirit of Jama Fanaka (laughs) remained behind, was there to inspire us, and and particularly to inspire me onto greater and greater effort. So uh, I I kept him very much in in my heart and in my mind as an inspiration throughout the next, what would, you know, really become now eight years (laughs) of very, very intense activism that has actually been very successful. And I I think maybe, you know, I was able to carry the torch. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Industry. This episode was written, edited, and hosted by me, Dan Delgado. Special thanks to all my guests this week, Zinavu Davis, Irving Meyer, Lexi Alexander, and Maria Geis. Music in this episode was by Silent Partner, Quincus Morea, and Verified Picasso cover art for this episode and every episode this season has been by the great Kat Manderfield. Check her out at katmanderfield.com. September was Podcast Appreciation Month and September 30th was International Podcast Day. Even though those events have passed, you can still show your appreciation to this podcast by going to our website, industrypodcast.org, and hitting the donate button at the top. Really, anything helps. You can also feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser.com, which is a cool site to get podcast recommendations from. If you want to follow the show on social media, you certainly can. We're on Twitter at TheIndustry13, Instagram at Industry underscore podcast, and Facebook at TheIndustryPod. No word on Snapchat as of yet. Articles, links, and other show notes are available for this episode on our website at industrypodcast.org slash articles. That's it for now. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again soon with another lesser-known story of the things that went on in the industry. Good night.